0: Welcome back to the podcast. Today I am super excited to introduce our guest, Nisha Modi. And before I introduce her with her official bio, I want to share a little bit about how I stalked Nisha and got her to follow me back. So I had an interview with James Olivia, who you heard from several episodes ago. And when I was in my conversation with James Olivia afterwards, they mentioned to me, you know what? You should really connect with Nisha on Instagram. And I said, well, can you introduce me? And they said, you know, I don't know Nisha personally, but we do follow each other on IG. So of course I went, I stalked Nisha and Nisha wonderfully followed me back. So I was really excited. And that started a conversation. And the thing that has me most excited about Nisha and our conversation is that one, she's our first South Asian guest or guest of South Asian descent. And two is she is a South Asian woman who is talking about issues of social justice and anti oppression, which we'll get into in our conversation about. Because there definitely is a shortage of South Asian people talking about these issues at hand. So with that, here is my formal introduction. Nisha Modi is a feminist healing coach, writer, librarian, cat mom, and also host of the podcast Migrations. She loves exploring the intersection of healing and justice, approaching situations and people with a trauma-informed lens. Nisha values curiosity, compassion, vulnerability, and community. You can find out more about Nisha by following her on Instagram at underscore Nisha Modi underscore or visiting her website www.nishaland.com. And Nisha, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Shirani. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
0: You're welcome. And let's just start with like a general intro, sharing with our listeners a little bit about you, um, who you are, and what has you passionate about having these conversations with healing and justice working hand in hand?
1: Yeah, the intersection of healing and justice has always been interesting to me, especially kind of growing up in the the '90s. This kind of like interesting heyday of like self help and self improvement with Deepak Chopra and you know whatnot, and like chicken soup for the soul, like those old books that I always was like inspired by. But as I became an adult and you know started exploring this realm on my own, I realized that like something was missing. That there's something about improving ourselves, but there's also some think about the injustices in the world that I felt were not in that conversation. And I kind of wondered, is like improving myself or healing myself selfish? Should I not do that? Should I be doing things for the world? And I actually started to see how they are very connected, how colonization, for example, creates certain traumas that is carried down through generations um, and is passed on to children and how so many injustices in the world and capitalism, for example, causes us to feel like that we're less than causes us to think that we're always in scarcity when we actually have so much worth and so much wealth on our own internally. So I really thought this was fascinating. And I noticed that so many people, especially those who identify as women, felt this, in my opinion, or were, were more interested and also kind of had this these feelings of not having self-worth and not feeling like they're enough. And I identified with it because I've definitely felt that way and still feel that way sometimes. And I also understand how that's related to systems and families. So yeah, that's basically how I got into it. And it's just basically like, I don't see a way to talk about healing ourselves without talking about healing the world.
0: Yes. And I love that you went right there because as you know, in my brick and mortar, I'm a relationship therapist and I totally am one of those growing up in the 90s babies and totally all about self help and affirmations and all those things. And then of course, being a mental health professional in my brick and mortar practice, like having been trained that way, you're exactly spot on in terms of, you know, oh, looking at ourselves. And my whole first book, Fierce Authenticity Show Up, Be Seen, Get Love is based on that premise of like really getting into right relationship with ourselves. And then, I started realizing, and it's really interesting because I'm actually a social worker. So I have my master's in social work and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. After my book was published, I started learning more about our nervous systems and how to heal and regulate our nervous systems and then intergenerational trauma and how that impacts our nervous system. And then like, as I continued to explore that, I started to become more aware of the fact that like my first book was missing a really huge piece of the puzzle, which I shared about in an earlier episode when we came back into this season. And it was missing that piece of social justice and how society and culture at large play into the experiences that we have and really shape exactly what you were saying, you know, because of the experiences of our ancestors and how that gets passed down and, and all of that. So I just love that you went straight there. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no problem. Like I said, it's kind of impossible for me to not talk about it because I see how connected they are along, you know, with gender and so many different intersections of oppression in this world that just spill over and I mean, you know, I think it's very complex and that's very hard for a lot of people to handle in their head it gets very overwhelming but it is supposed to be complex you know I mean there are complex relationships we just have with one member of our family so if we're talking about the world yeah it gets messy but I feel like we have to sit in that mess
0: Yes, absolutely. And I love that you just said that, like we have to just sit in the mess because it is messy and it's gotten all tangled up. It's like all of a sudden I'm having an image of when my favorite necklace gets tangled up and it's just, it's so difficult to untangle it and you pull on this side and then it totally like messes up the other side. And, and you know, that whole example of like, that's how messy it can get. And it has gotten because we're looking at centuries and centuries worth of systemic issues that have impacted the way we live our lives today and the intersections, like you're saying, of gender, ability, skills, like everything.
1: Yeah, definitely. I love that visualization. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to think about that more because it's so true. It it gets so frustrating, but you just (laughs) need to untangle it because it's your favorite necklace. And I'm really going to sit with that because I, I really like that way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah. And I like to just share whatever visuals come to mind. And in the moment, like that was the one I'm just thinking just how frustrating it is, like you said, where it's just like, oh, but I really want to wear this. Like, it's so beautiful. And I think that's the same with humanity. Like humanity is so beautiful when we get beneath the layers of all the wounding, all the trauma, all the hurt, all the pain. And yet with all those entanglements and tangled up bundle of mess, it's challenging to sometimes remember that. And in another previous episode of the podcast, I spoke with Lisa Miron, who shared a little bit more about entanglements in the family systems and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's just complicated. And I often, I like, uh, I think it was Brené Brown who talks about the messy middle. And I think that's where we're at right now as a collective is we're in this messy middle.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think this year, 2020 has highlighted that even more. I mean, I think, you know, it's not like 2020 brought it up. I mean, it's been there, right? But I think that it has really shown some light and shown a lot of different nuance too with how things have come to be for those that have that level of interest and social consciousness. A lot of the things that we're like, oh my God, what the hell, you know, like, you know I've always kind of been that way it just depends on how much it affects us and you I well, I have my intersections of oppression, I have a lot of privilege too. And it's making me realize that the degree to which I say what the fuck also actually is in alignment with how much privilege I have, you know? Um, and it's fine to be like horrified and like confused and emotional and depressed and so many feelings for this year. But I also think it's really, really important to understand what we have had and why we may have had those things, which I feel like, you know, coming from being a daughter of South Asian immigrants who definitely struggled but still had things in a certain way a lot easier in terms of being this quote-unquote model minority and kind of rising up if you want to say um, and you know they really worked hard but I definitely think there were certain things that they did not deal with like they were not enslaved you know these are things that between different underrepresented populations. For this one, speaking to racially, you know, there are definitely things that we have to recognize and we cannot equate ourselves with each other.
0: Yeah. And there was so much richness in that. And there's a few pieces that I want to go back to. And first of all, I want to apologize because I identified you as a South Asian woman and a South Asian identified woman. And I want to back up and totally correct myself. How do you identify
1: that's a great question. It's something, you know, I think it's a great question because I think it's so fluid. I mean, I feel like maybe 10 years ago, I would say I'm Indian. And then when I go to India, I say I'm American, right? <laughs> and before I would say I'm Indian American, but now I just, I feel like I say usually South Asian American okay. woman. And that's you know usually how I go because I feel like there are so many countries in South Asia that people forget. And, you know, there's a lot of politics in India right now that, you know, in my opinion, pro- very problematic. And um, I do think it's really important to look at South Asia as a whole. And I also feel like for a sense of community, I do like to say South Asian America and yeah.
0: Okay, thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah, because I just jumped in and put my label on you. So thank you. I'm glad I caught myself there. And one of the other things that I really was drawn to when you talked about how the fact that although you and I both come from, you know, underrepresented populations but we don't have the experience of slavery like we don't know what it's like to be enslaved and this is i think where there's a difference between you and i and i haven't shared this with you i don't think but i'm not actually from india i am from fiji and i heard a podcast episode of yours nisha where you were like i don't exactly know or understand the history um you know because it's not taught when we live in colonized lands, we're not taught the history of what the colonizers had done. So five generations ago, my family, um, you know, when India was under British rule, they were taken and uh, to work the sugarcane plantations as indentured laborers, uh, or indentured, say, you know, servants working for next to nothing. And the thing is, Even I had the thought in my mind, though, with that, it was kind of like, you know, well, my people have had that experience, but then the more I learn, it's like, oh, but my people were not stolen from their land and taken and sold and viewed as subhuman. So that's definitely some work that I've had to do inside myself and internally, because for me, I had this thought in the past of like, but I don't understand why it would be so different. And thank goodness I started doing my own personal learning and unlearning so that I could see that absolutely, yes, although my ancestry included indentured servitude, it wasn't the same as enslavement. That's one of the things that really helped break open my mind and my experience and my healing to looking more closely at the patterns because I'll be quite honest, a lot of the patterns that I see in the Indo-Fijian population is very similar to a lot of other oppressed and marginalized populations here in the US. And when I say that, I often compared our, you know, experience as a family to those of African Americans. And I have one part of the family that's half black. They are amazing. I adore them. And there is this part of just seeing the similar themes of poverty and violence and abuse and all those things that what I've come to realize really is a result of colonization and oppression and the way that impacts us and our position.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really glad you said that because it's so interesting. And I think I've talked about that in the Indian matchmaking episode I did where yes. um, we were talking about Nadia and how she has the Guyanese background. And like, I didn't really even know about that. So I also didn't really know this history. So I appreciate you clarifying that for me because there's so many different power dynamics, right? Like there's still like tons of colonization and tons of like oppression with what you're talking about, but it's a different experience. I think it's also interesting because there are traumatic events and then there's the trauma that ensues and also the oppression that ensues. So even when in the United States, the slaves were liberated or freed, I mean, there is still like essentially modern day slavery and for-profit prisons, like the carceral state. I mean, that, that stuff is there. It is still there. And it's alive. It doesn't have to be the mid nineteenth century for that to to exist. Um, so yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm um, and it just comes back to this word nuance, you know. And I was actually just talking with um, Margot Feldman, who is this really great um, person I follow on Instagram. And I was talking to them about the word nuance and how sometimes I feel like it's used as a way for. People to say, oh well, it's nuance, and the, the the conversation kind of ends there. But that is that messiness that we have to sit in. That my history as a South Asian American woman is different than your families, and is different than somebody else's. And especially in a country specifically with India, where there is the caste system, that still there is so much oppression. There's this recent gang rape that just happened in India. You know, these things haven't ended. So, and I think they are also tied in. Together, When we talk about black liberation, Palestinian liberation, you know, caste liberation, like all that stuff is so, so intricately tied. And I think those parallels, while there are differences that we definitely have to consider, those parallels are also really fascinating to explore.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned the caste system and these other things that have impacted South Asian culture historically, even pre-colonization, right? And the thought that I had was colorism. How fair and lovely is the cream that everyone needs to buy because it's the skin bleaching cream. Even in my own family, there's like, Oh, that person's dark. Like they're, they're darker. Oh, you're more fair. Oh, yes. Okay. You guys will be an okay match because the babies will be okay. Right. Cause you know, it's just so interesting how all of that plays out. And one of the people that I'm learning from and I've shared about her several times in the podcast is, Milagros Phillips and how she actually talks about castas, which is the caste system. You know, in our South Asian culture, we call it the caste system. And apparently there was a word for it back when. Colonization reached the Americas. Uh, she is an Afro Cuban woman and she teaches about the middle passage, which first, uh, arrived, you know, to the, um, Dominican Republic and those Caribbean countries first. And she talks about the castas system and how the color of your skin determined where you were at in social status and, and positioning, you know, so it's just interesting how, You bring all of it together into the culture of the U.S. And even though there's different backgrounds, there's still these similarities because we come to this land that has historically, since the colonizers arrived, has been all about oppressive systems and structures. It's been all about conquering Um, Because, of course, indigenous peoples, they knew how to live in harmony and in balance with nature and with one another. But when colonizers came from Europe, they didn't bring that harmony and balance with them. What they brought was pain and trauma and how that lives on the land.
1: Yes, it is so rooted in the land. And that's where doing things like land acknowledgements, I think are so important, not just as a performative way, but really to be like, this was someone else's land that was stolen, not just stolen, but pillaged. The actual literal soil was used in a different way for farming to profit. I think these things are so, so important to to realize how tied it is to a certain type of exceptionalism, right? American exceptionalism as if we're better. Um, you know, national pride has always confused me. I never understood July 4th. Like I, I still feel very uncomfortable. Um, and I, you know, I never probably will do this as like wearing anything that has an American flag or an Indian flag. And it's not because <laughs> I'm not like proud of where I came from. I actually think that's just a very... Asking if someone's proud of where they came from, especially as being someone who is a product of immigrants, I guess it's just like a weird question for me. It's like, well, I don't know what to be proud of. Proud that my parents felt the need to leave and assimilate because of colonization in India to a country that only accepted them because they kind of needed their labor. Like, what like, what should I be proud of exactly? And I've never believed in borders. I don't believe in nationalism or national pride. It's just always really confused me. And saying that one country is, or even area is better than someone else, instead of just celebrating the beauty of all different places and seeing how we can connect with each other and not use each other for a product. It seems so intuitive to me, but if I bring this up in certain conversations, people are like, yeah, but you know, it's the economic system. It's supply and demand. It's like, I don't care. That's <laughs> not what I'm talking about. Like let's, all this stuff is made up. You know, everything is made up. Like money is made up. Economic systems are made up. Governmental structures are made up. We're just entrenched in those systems, you know?
0: Yes. And what you're saying, like, not only is it about product, it's about profit. Right. And how to profit off of people and exploit people to profit off of them, whether it's their labor, their land, or their intelligence, or all of the above, which I could go on a whole other tangent here about South Asian communities in the Bay Area. So I'm based in Silicon Valley, you know, the tech hub. And I often hear my clients and friends that are South Asian that they're only able to get to a certain level and then they never make it beyond middle management. They never are able to advance. A lot of them don't have seats in exec positions and some of, you know, board positions and things like that cuz they just don't get that opportunity. And in some ways like really it's exploiting um their intelligence. Now my husband works in the tech world. He has a different perspective on it, but to me I'm like, dude, they're exploiting the people still, especially some of these larger tech companies, some of the very well-known ones here locally in the area, where they just work, 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 and really don't make it beyond a certain level to have greater power and influence. And and I'm not saying power and influence in the shadow sense here, like I'm talking about in a way that they can make a greater impact with their work.
1: Sure, definitely. I'm um... I mean, I'm not in that world, but I believe it.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, I definitely believe it. And then another thing that you brought up uh, that I want to go back to is when you talked about, you know, what should I be proud of that my parents decided to leave their country or that they worked so hard or, you know, and, and had to assimilate, like, that's where I want to take our conversation next. And it's about, at least in my experience as a South Asian woman, I have You know, when I start to look at my own history and my own choices that I've made in my behavior. Um, I'm also learning with Andrea Renee, and she talks about how culture is just a series of choices that we make, like micro choices is what creates the culture that we live in, right? And I myself am an immigrant woman. I immigrated here with my family. We were escaping the coups of the 1980s, like the actual military political coups of the 80s in Fiji, and moved here. I was three years old when we moved. So I pretty much identify as you know, American as well when asked. And I know that I have this very rich Indo-Fijian history and heritage, the marriage of the Indian heritage and the colonization and whatever we can go on and on. But the point is that I'm trying to make that when I started looking back and reflecting, I started thinking about, wow, how is it that I have really neglected looking at the BIPOC experience in the US, you know, because I was an immigrant, I experienced racism, I experienced hatred, I experienced all sorts of stuff. And for a while, there was that wall of, like, I know what this experience is like, so whatever. And it wasn't until I started doing some of the deeper learning that I started to look back and ask myself, like, how did that happen? And I started thinking even further back, to colonization, and how people that got in well with the white colonizers typically had better status or better roles or better responsibilities, right? So, again, talking about the intergenerational piece, it's like that got taught as a survival skill. Um it makes me think of the tend and befriend. You know, everyone knows fight, flight, freeze, but there's actually a fourth response which is fawn or tend and befriend. And it makes me think of that, like the, if you can't beat them, join them. And and how do we join them and still have be able to survive and not just survive but thrive? And so for me as I started reflecting, that's what came to my awareness and then I started learning about the model minority myth. And so let's go there. Let's talk about the model minority and how it really damages our relationships with ourselves, with others, and what that experience is even like. So let's talk a little bit about that if you're open to that.
1: Yeah, let's get into it.
0: I know that you mentioned it earlier about the working hard and stuff like that. So I'd love to hear a little bit from either your perspective or, you know, your family's story about what that looked like.
1: Sure. Um, you know, growing up, I, I always felt safe in terms of like I was never worried I wouldn't have there wouldn't be dinner on the table. I was never worried that my parents wouldn't come home. Things that, you know, as a child makes you feel safe, which is very, very important. And I'm very grateful for that. But there was always this emphasis of constantly saving money, not getting things because we don't do that. Like white people buy things at full price, but we don't do that, you know, (laughs) and it's just kind of this idea of, um, you know, constantly penny pinching that, you know, even though I'm, I'm very grateful that my mom does not have to worry at that level anymore, it's still very ingrained in her mindset to go to 55 stores to look at one thing to find the best price instead of just being like, just go to two places and you know, it's fine. So I feel like that is one part of it where they tried to get the best things that were as on par with white culture but at a lower price at a bargain right (laughs) so you know it's kind of funny like I mean I think about that quite a bit like even when I make purchases now I'm like oh my god and if I was little like my mom never would have like spent like this and I have a sense of guilt almost like not feeling like I appreciated what they did and I should be checking 55 stores for this one (laughs) thing you know but I also feel like that took away a lot of their happiness and a lot of their time went to stuff like that instead of tending to themselves and I feel like that's where that intergenerational trauma comes in where they didn't get to tend to themselves. So then we received the the end of that, my brother and I, where, you know, there's just a lot of internalized fear and a lot of internalized I don't know if I want to say hate, but just a lot of internalized I'm um, scarcity, kind of back to that scarcity model, right? But at the same time, I felt like there was also this idea of like when in Rome kind of be <sighs> like the Romans type of thing, where you know, you have to kind of assimilate basically and i think it was easier in a lot of ways for us as indians to assimilate to white culture than it might have been for someone that perhaps is black or latino or latinx and um, because in terms of like the racial like stratification asians were kind of seen as more superior which is also interesting to me sometimes when i look at history because you know after the slaves were freed, you know, in, in the like 1860s after the, the Civil War, the Chinese built the railroads, right? So, and then there was like a long period where there was the Asiatic Barred Zone where no Asians could come here. And there was a lot of anti-Asian racism and there still very much is. And there are also very different types of Asian stories. We're looking, if you're looking at my parents who came here because of 1965, Nationality and Immigration Act or forget exactly what it's called, something like that. They were kind of allowed to come here versus someone that's like a Vietnamese refugee, you know. So this idea of the model minority, it puts us in one bucket when there are very, very different stories in terms of how we came here and how we came to be. And also very much puts, it's this division between Asians and black people. It's almost this anti-black racism that exists within the Asian community that is created by this idea of the model minority. You know, a lot of the civil rights work that um, was beneficial to Asians is because of the African-American civil rights movement. It has nothing, I mean, that has nothing, yes, a lot of Asian-Americans did that work, but they Um, African-Americans set that precedent. They did a lot of that activism work that would like we would not be affected positively unless it was for that. So that divisiveness, I think, is very, very dangerous because it kind of pushes us to assimilate more to that white culture instead of realizing Different, these different racial stratifications and how they were created um, to divide us.
0: Yes. And that is so important what you just said, like that these really were created to divide us. And I've spoken on several other episodes about how it's that divisiveness and that divide that is a strategy that colonizers and oppression uses in order to weaken us because they know that we are. Stronger together. And like that's where the phrase divide and conquer came from. And I'm glad you brought up the anti blackness piece because my background for five generations is from the Fiji Islands, where again, white colonizers went with a whole boatload of, you know, Indian people. And there were black bodied indigenous people that lived on those islands before the white people brought the brown people over and even there like when I start to think about the history of Fijian and how what I know of it like there is even so much divisiveness and divide there and that's actually from what I am told what some of those military coups were about was you know who got elected to be in leadership was it a black indigenous you know person? Or was it an Indo Fijian person? Like, what was their heritage? And if it wasn't what, you know, one group liked, then they overthrew the other group via these military coups. Like, that's my knowledge and what's been passed down to me. And so it's interesting to look at how that is not just here in the US, but it's Everywhere that's been impacted by colonization is this very much this anti blackness and how it is created as an us them thing, you know, um, the othering. And one of the things that I want to mention is I really appreciated one when I heard your episode, you spoke about exactly what you just said, right? It was the work of black civil rights activists that even opened it up so that South Asians could immigrate here. And I really. Appreciated before I heard your episode. You know, right after the murder of George Floyd, Hasan Minaj came out and did his video about, like, hey, South Asians, like. He didn't say this, but I'm going to say it in my words. Wake the fuck up, y'all. You're here because of the black civil rights movement. Like, that's how you're even here. And I'm going to put it out there. I one day hope to have Hasan Minaj as a guest on the podcast. I, I'm going to put that out there into the world. So I think it's a really important to bring up because I think it plays into some of that colorism and casta stuff that Milagros teaches about because you know um, how she teaches it is the black that were enslaved like they were the worst off right they were the ones that were absolutely not human at all and then there was the white people and then the brown people well they were closer to the white people so they were treated a little bit better and then the color of their skin was weaponized against black people because at least they weren't as dark you know like they weren't black they were brown which made them a little bit closer to the colonizer which is so effed up and mind trippy that that's like the systems that were created
1: yeah it just seems so childish in a way (laughs) you know what i mean like It's really fascinating to me. I mean, even now, like what you were saying before about the colorism, like yesterday, I was on this group call with my mom and my brother and I was just looking at my face. I'm like, man, I got dark. I hope my mom doesn't say something about that. You know, like I'm almost 40 years old and I'm thinking about this still, you know? And I think one thing that's interesting going back to the caste system is that I feel like in many ways, it has primed us also to have this level of anti-blackness. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I grew up hearing well you know if if we can make it why can't black people do that like that bootstraps mentality like weaponizing it against them instead of thinking "Whoa, we have very different stories and we are viewed in very different ways instead of pushing someone down and thinking that they have to earn some type of way perhaps we can have some compassion and be there to support them to listen to them to listen to their stories instead of making it some type of like messed up monolith where we're saying that, you know, they haven't done the work like we have, where it's like, no, it's, it's not equal here, you know? And I feel like that, that mentality in terms of the caste system totally is in alignment with that anti-blackness too.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate how you're circling it back around to the model minority. Myth, you know, um, which is, and I even have heard this not only growing up, but also in my life today. I hear it. My husband actually grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods in, um, San Jose. And even he still has that mentality sometimes of, well, I came up from there. Uh, it was a very heavy, like gang, um, influenced area, a lot of violence, um, because he also is an immigrant and has the immigrant experience of coming here from Fiji as well, and everything that came with that. So we have similar backgrounds in that way. And it's that, you know, he will even say sometimes, well, I made it out of seven trees. And so I, it's anyone can do it. And I'm like, no, babe, like, you don't understand like and and I used to think that way as well, because it was so ingrained in me that if we can do it, anyone can do it. My parents, when they moved here, they both worked two jobs apiece so that they could sustain um our family and and advance it in the way of the quote unquote American dream right and it was one of those experiences where, like, yeah, well, we've worked hard, so everyone just has to work hard and Uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but and no welfare, like we don't need government assistance. Like we'll just, you know, because even that was weaponized as welfare and government assistance and food stamps like that was for black people. That wasn't for us.
1: And it was also spoken in a way where they're taking advantage of it, where like do corporations not take advantage of people constantly do they not exploit their labor do they not give them human rights or pay them minimum wage or pay them a living wage i should say you know we're talking about someone like jeff bezos who's like a trillionaire who his workers during covid are getting sick and dying and you're talking about someone taking advantage of welfare. Like, I don't give a shit what they're doing. You know, <laughs> like this person has more money than they and multiple people will ever need. And you're sitting here saying that they're successful. Let's see where this comes from because they're exploiting other people. They're not doing the work. Other people are doing the work, you know? And that is just wrong, you know? Like, I just don't understand how we celebrate that and how we pedestalize people who are essentially harming others you know and just sleep at night fine knowing that you know so it's really it's it's a lot and um so much of this rhetoric too which is interesting about just working hard it's funny because it's like capitalism itself is designed so that's people are screwed <laughs> you know like so saying that everyone can work hard is actually not in alignment with the system that exists in this country and in the world, right? There will always be the haves and the have-nots. And then there's the in-betweens, you know, but that is how this is designed. So why don't we think about changing the design to focus on humanity and being humane and making things sustainable and thinking about the earth and what we are doing to it? You know, it's just amazing how that's such a revolutionary and radical way of thinking when to me, it feels very common sense, but I have to use these words, radical and revolutionary to just talk about like us helping each other out as human beings. It's mind boggling to me.
0: Yeah. And, and what I am thinking of, one, you're absolutely right. How these ideas that are so quote unquote revolutionary right now and radical right now is really the ways of Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, pre colonization, with all our forest fires in California. And I didn't fact check this, but I saw something that said that indigenous people here actually had a practice of tending to the trees and the land to help with maintaining fires and maintenance and prevention of fires. And that that was banned at one point, I think in the 1800s or early 1900s, um, at some point like that. And again, I didn't fact check it, but it felt true to me when I saw that headline. It was just like, well, yeah, that makes sense that they had these practices because Indigenous people knew how to tend to the land.
1: Yeah, and it also makes sense because if Indigenous folks were acting in accordance with how their conquerors acted, then they probably would have been more partners than people that were pitted against Mm -hmm. each other. Right. It's like, Oh, well we think the same way. It's like, no, they didn't. And that's why they had to be conquered and get their land stripped away from them. You know, so there's a reason that that power had to be put into place and how this idea of being savage versus not savage and proper and distinguished why those dichotomies existed, those binaries existed. And I think that's also a really fascinating um, component to our society today is that there are so many of these false binaries that we don't see a third, fourth, or fifth way. We just see these two choices, you know, whether it's gender. I mean, there's so many, right? So yeah, that's something that I also think is really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. And when you say that, it makes me think of how even recently for me, my big awareness over the past few weeks had been, oh my goodness, I was acting in the ways of the colonizer. And that's actually what the first episode back this season talks about is how I had been doing things in that way without even knowing it. And I sent an email out to my email community, taking total ownership of the fact that I was doing what the colonizers did. And again, how it is so ingrained in us that we don't even know that we're doing it.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's why I feel like I'm very intentional with looking at marketing strategies and stuff like that and who the person is and what their values are if I want additional support besides myself because I'm realizing how you know the way the world works makes us think, okay, well, you know, if this person was quote unquote successful for doing that, then maybe I should do that. Who did they use instead of thinking, well, what are their values? Mm. How do they align with my values? Um, But it's, it's so much, I think easier. Like you said, it becomes so much more natural to just do things the way that the colonizer has ingrained in us. Cause that's the way I grew up. That's just what it is. Like my parents were in one colonized country and then they came to the United States. It's like double colonization. You know what I mean? Like that stuff is, is so important ingrained. And I mean, I've totally been guilty of it too, Shrani. I mean, I think it's something that what matters more is becoming aware and repairing because I truly believe that all people are capable of being harmed and harming. And it's what we do with that information after um, that's most important. Um, And I think that that to me is what the integrity of a person is. Actually speaking up and saying like, I messed up. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm going to do. And now I'm going to sit down and listen and start acting upon this, you know. So I think it's really, really important to do
0: that. Nisha, one thing that you just said about that we're all capable of harming and being harmed. It makes me think of something that I often teach about, which is that we're both the oppressor and the oppressed. It lives inside of us.
1: Yeah, it is so inside of us. And the thing is, that's okay. It's not our fault. We were just born, you know? <laughs> um, we were just born to this world that has these systems in place. And it's that awareness and waking up and unlearning You know what I mean? Unlearning all this, these peeling back those onion layers, you know, and seeing like, oh, all this like gunk. I say that all this gunk's been on top of me and I just need to Mm -hmm. keep clearing it out and realizing Mm -hmm. who I truly am as a human being, how that's been affected by these different levels of oppression and privilege and come to terms with that and see how I could support my fellow humanity and the world and the climate and, create some type of harmony like even the littlest things I can do and I think it's really important to start small in that sense you know I think so often I was just listening to this really great webinar with Adrian Marie Brown, Prentice Hempel and I think it's Sydney Morgan and one thing that Adrian talked about was how we get wrapped up in this like but we need to do this fast like you know the world there's so many bad things but how is this little thing going to affect the rest of the world like what are we going to do and you know it's hard because there are so many urgent social situations right now but rushing to do them is actually the same thing as being in a colonized mindset and it's Mm -hmm. like that slow those slow conversations the really sitting and mulling and imagining and world building all those things that are skills that we never were taught that as adults now I'm thinking about this you know Mm -hmm. and yeah it really makes me think about education and how that's so in alignment I used to be a speech therapist as well and And I worked in the school system and that was one of the biggest issues I had was, and I was there to support the students and I wanted to, but I felt like so much of what I needed to do wasn't in alignment with these like educational goals. And I'm just like, it just doesn't make sense to me, you know? So, I mean, some of it was, but there was a lot that I felt like wasn't getting to a certain foundational way of thinking and way of being that we're not teaching children today or ever have, even when I was a kid, you know? So...
0: I think it's really important what you just said, Nisha, about the fact that we really do need to watch how we are doing our work as we are unlearning and learning and healing because there is an energy right now of do it fast and that do it bigger, faster, better, like that's all a part of supremacy culture. And it's the continuation of that. It's just looks differently, right? Same pattern, different name different face. And so I really appreciate how the reminder of like, this is going to take time and it's going to require our very intentional and mindful participation in it.
1: Yeah, I like that. That was a good way of putting it. Yeah. And it's really hard because, you know, there are people being harmed this very second and will continue to be harmed. And I'm not okay with that. I'm just realistic about it. And it's hard because we want to help. We want to support others as much as possible. But If we want things to be sustainable, we can't just keep putting band-aids on things. We need to really, really get to the root, which is really difficult. Like I was circling back to the beginning of the conversation. It's messy. It is so damn messy. I think that continuing to unlearn and understand the root of issues and kind of how the path ensued after is how we can revolutionize and start doing things differently.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it feels like a great place for us to start wrapping up our conversation with just this thought and this image to chew on uh, and meditate on of really getting intentional, getting mindful so that we're not building the new system in a different version of the old system. And that's one of the things that I've shared about in the free audio training that I have, that's a welcome to my new email community members, is like how we can't build the world that we want to live in and the world that we want to see, If we're doing it with the same tools that built the system that we're in right now. So it's this really mind trippy, multi-layered, multi-dimensional thing that we're doing of recognizing, unlearning, learning, and in that is the dismantling, and then the development of the new tools before we're able to create the new ones. And it makes me think of just prehistoric type tools that cavemen were using and you know our very very early human ancestors were using right the tools that they used to make fire are very different than the tools we make to use fire
1: yeah definitely and there's that um i think it's a book by audrey lord the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house And I think about that often, that one thing that I see in something like electoral politics, for example, is that I see a lot of people of underrepresented backgrounds getting involved in it. And I understand like, this is the system we are in, but I really personally think that for a revolution, it's not going to be in those systems. It's going to be in something outside of it that needs to be created. Mm -hmm. And I know others may not agree with that, but that's my true belief. And I think we really need to kind of think about this. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house when we go about Doing things, and, you know. There are certain things like we still live in this world. There's only so much, you know. We can constantly use new, new ways of thinking, but I think there's frameworks that we can believe in that we can use to guide us in that sense.
0: Yes, and I love that quote. I jotted it down, and we'll link the work of Audrey Lord in the show notes so our listeners can learn more as well. And there's this burning question that I really feel like asking, which is coming back to one of the things that we talked about earlier about how not enough people of South Asian descent, you know, not enough South Asians, South Asian Americans are having this conversation. Why do you think that is? And what can we do to change that? I think it's
1: because of the model minority. South Asians came to the United States and other, you know, Canada, other westernized countries with this idea of succeeding in the American dream. Whereas the majority of black people, I mean, there's a lot of African immigrants that do not fall in this category, but the majority of black people came by force and a lot of African immigrants also came as refugees, like Somalians, Mm -hmm. etc. But we came to accomplish this idea of the American dream, which means that we must assimilate to this culture. Mm. While assimilation is alive and well in all communities, (laughs) um, it spreads throughout communities and I mean, I hear it all the time, you know, I'm not around a lot of family friends that I grew up with anymore just because my lifestyle is different but, you know, where it's like, oh, he's the vice president of this bank and his wife is this and they have three kids and they just got this marble countertop, like all this stuff Mm -hmm. that's just so materially based but I'm just like, you didn't tell me anything about them Actually, I know nothing about them from what you said, aside from like where they work and how nice their countertop probably feels. If you want to think in this where you want to dismantle this, it very much threatens the foundation of what a lot of these people's lives are. And it will take away a certain level of privilege that they have. And that's hard. It's hard hard to deal with. That's why white people have so much trouble with even thinking that they have privilege. So yeah, that's a huge reason. Though I am seeing more and more slowly kind of be into it It also might be because I've chosen to create and curate the bubble in my life and Mm -hmm. I'm completely fine with that so it's hard to say if it's more and more if that's just what I've gravitated to now that I have that increased awareness I like find those people like you followed me I saw your stuff I'm like yes (laughs) And I'm always excited when I do find someone of a similar background that has these ways of thinking because it's true it's like we're grasping for that new community and I think the more we grasp and find those people the more of a conscious resistance we can have.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that phrase, conscious resistance. And I also love you just calling it out and saying as a result of striving for this American dream, which really is the white colonizer's dream, that we assimilate. And once you're there, there's this threat that if I say anything contrary to what this culture and what this dream is I will no longer belong I'll no longer be part of and it will threaten my livelihood threaten my privilege threaten this whole dream and not that we know that consciously and that is how insidious all of this is which is why I think it's beautiful what you just said about the conscious aspect yeah definitely Well, Nisha, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm feeling a completion to this conversation. And before that, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners?
1: I feel like we touched on so many great things. And I'm so grateful to have this space where I feel safe to talk about these Mm -hmm. topics because I think often there are spaces where it's not that way, you know, and, um, I think continuing to have these conversations um you know with aligned action is where that change will will take place it's in that process you know not in that end goal and mm-hmm. I think that's what's so beautiful so yeah I just have so much gratitude for you for inviting me onto this podcast and I cannot wait to see um what happens next and what you do because I love your work
0: mm, thank you so much yeah I am it's still coming to me. And I'm going to give myself permission that there's no right or wrong way to do it, but just opportunities to learn and unlearn and do it differently if need be. And so thank you again, Nisha, for being here. And where can our listeners find you? How can they connect with you? And is there anything that you've got going on that you would like to share with them about?
1: So you can find me on Instagram at Healing Hype Girl and on Twitter at Nishimodi. Um, And another thing I wanted to talk about is that I've really been trying to find a way to provide accessible and affordable healing support and information. So what I did was I just created a newsletter and community called The Healing Hype. Um, And you can read about healing and justice topics like intergenerational trauma Capitalism and different healing modalities. You'll get to attend a free workshop, participate in healing circles, read an advice column that I'm going to have where you can also ask for advice. And you get all of this for less than $7 a month. And on top of it all, all my posts are audio accessible so you can listen to them conveniently. And 15% of the cost goes back to my BIPOC Healing Fund so I can offer scholarships and discounts to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And on top of it, I have a special plan for providers like coaches and healers or therapists or whoever so we can support each other. So just go to www.thehealinghype.com and reach out to me if you have any questions.
0: Yeah, and your reels are really cute that you've been doing on Instagram. I'm just going to put that one out there. They're quite, uh, yeah, adorable and also very powerful. Um, And I love how you're just getting in front of the camera and being your fiercely authentic self and just bringing your healing medicine and your magic to the world. Awesome. Thank you, Shirani. Today we're switching things up and I am sharing my thoughts about the interview after my interview with Nisha. Normally I give a brief introduction and today I actually want to do it as kind of an outro, a summary. Uh, Nisha and I had a beautiful conversation and we went to so many different places. We talked about colorism. We talked about Oppression. We talked about the caste system and how that and colorism go together. We talked about anti-blackness. We talked about the way the South Asian community has been brought into the anti-blackness as a result of colonization. And we shared so many powerful things. And one of the things that I loved most about our conversation, in addition to the total, raw, authentic vulnerability and the fierce authenticity of our conversation, is at the very end when we talked about what is it that gets in the way of most South Asians and South Asian communities speaking up about racism and anti-blackness and some of the other issues that we're seeing with social justice and creating a greater, more equitable environment. Like, why is that? And the thought that she shared was as a result of colonization, one, there's all the stuff from the past about needing to assimilate with the colonizer. And also having the experience of immigrating to the U.S. to follow the quote unquote American dream also puts a lot of South Asians in the mindset of, well, if they moved here for the American dream, then they need to really assimilate and do things in the way of the American dream. And yet the really tricky and sneaky part about it is that when we do that, we also further assimilate to supremacy culture. And we learn that to speak up about racism and anti-blackness would mean that we lose our status. We lose our privilege. It threatens the foundation. And that felt really powerful to me. And so, yeah, that's what I want to leave you with today is as you're integrating and mulling over the richness that was the conversation Nisha and I had, I really want to invite you to just sit with and mull over how are you playing into supremacy culture by believing that if you were to speak up against oppression and supremacy and racism and anti-blackness, how you might, quote unquote, experience a threat to your foundation or the experience of having your privilege taken away. How might that be a part of what prevents you from doing your part? And when the answer reveals itself to you, it's not to say that there are any right or wrong answers, just that as the answer reveals itself to you, get curious about is that threat real or imagined? Because the brain doesn't know the difference between what is real and what is imagined. And so as you contemplate on the question and as whatever comes to your awareness comes to your awareness, And this is a process and it's multi layered. So you're going to be asking yourself this question and contemplating it every now and again. And as you do that, get curious where are you playing into this? Where are you buying into this? And where do you need to start making changes within yourself so that we can create in a sustainable way the world? we want to live in, that you want to live in, that we want to leave for our future generations. And with that, I'm out. So have a great week and we will speak again soon. Take really good care. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. I want to give credit where credit is due and acknowledge all of the amazing humans who help make this podcast possible, starting with our main cover photography, which is by Jillian at Epoxy Studios. Cover design, transcripts, blog posts, and all of the pretty IG quote graphics you see are done by my assistant, Ana Olvina custom music and editing is done by my editor, Diego Velasquez. And though this isn't a human, I do want to acknowledge that all messages that you hear on the podcast are channeled through the divine wisdom that flows through me. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to get in on ways to support the podcast and get in on community, there's many ways to do so. Starting with rate and review the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Share the podcast with everyone you know, including screenshotting it and sharing it on IG. And when you do that, please be sure to tag me at Sharani M. Pathak. If you have the financial means to do so, then please head on over to coffee.com slash Sharani, that's ko-fi.com slash Sharani, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution starting at just $5. It takes upwards of $300 a month to support my podcast team. And by making a financial contribution, you're contributing to the podcast and you're supporting all of us and the labor that we are doing to make this podcast possible for you. And lastly, if you want in on the Fierce Authenticity email community where I share behind the scenes info, stories I don't share anywhere else, and opportunities to get first dibs on anything I'm offering, then head on over to www.fierceauthenticity.com slash newsletter to join the community. As a welcome gift, you'll receive an audio training I've recorded just for you on what fierce authenticity is and why it matters at this revolutionary time on our planet. Until we meet again, take really good care.